Hi, I'm Siggy, born and raised in St. Catharines, Ontario, and now living in the nation's capital of Ottawa. And I'm Jesse, born in Manila, Philippines, raised in Toronto, Canada, and schooled all over southwestern Ontario. You're listening to the Halo Halo podcast, a delicious mix of pop culture and the Filipino-Canadian life. Before we start our podcast, we'd like to acknowledge the lands we're podcasting on. I'm podcasting from the traditional lands of the Huron-Wendat, the Seneca, and most recently, the Mississaugas of the Credit River. And I'm podcasting from the traditional unceded territory of the Algonquin and Anishinaabe people. On today's podcast, we talk about Dante Bosco and Bosco families, the fabulous Filipino brothers. And then later on in this podcast, we talk about the Barong Tagalog. But before we do that, Sigs, let's catch up. What have you been up to pop culture-wise? You know, it's so funny. My pop culture catch-up is very short because, Queen, have you given up anything for Lent? No, actually. <laughs> I haven't done, done <laughs> I, And my mom's probably going to talk to me after this podcast airs. Oh, I'm right? so sorry. <laughs> Tita Mel, be very kind to Jesse. I didn't mean to put him in this. Well, I was playing this ridiculous game. You know when you get addicted to games yes, on your phone? Yes, and yes. You know, pay $3.99, you can get more keys. I, was, I don't know, this farming game... I got really ridiculous. Yes, so I was like, yes. I stopped, I dismantled it. I would play it all the time. I have the subscription to Apple and I have Apple Arcade. Right. And there's this great game. I don't know if you ever played it. It's called Monument Valley. Oh. And it's really simple. It's just basically this like triangle figure trying to travel to different places. You have to get to point A to point B to press buttons and all that stuff. But the background is like an Escher painting. So you would have to pivot things and look at it from different perspectives. And so if you tilt it one way, it looks like there's a path connected. But if you flip it over again, it becomes disconnected. So the music behind it is very soothing. And it's just you trying to navigate for them going from point A to point B, pressing buttons. It takes a lot of logic. It's very calming. Unfortunately, I went through it like that. Wow. And there's a Monument Valley Part 2. But very simple, very calming. It won a couple awards. Going through Eshu paintings and trying to remove your mind, where finally you get to move your phone and it doesn't try to orient <laughs> it to the, yes, uh, yes, it doesn't yes. write it because it wants you to go upside down around. How do the curves work? It just gave my mind a bit of a break and to do a puzzle, and it was free because it was Apple Arcade. Yeah. So I highly recommend Monument Valley. On Apple Arcade. What have you been up to pop culture-wise? What have I been up to pop culture-wise? Well, just recently, I saw RuPaul Drag Race Season 6 winner Bianca Del Rio in her unsanitized stand-up tour. And so I just saw that. No way! Yeah, it was pretty amazing, actually. First of all, it was amazing only simply because it's like, I have not been out to a public event in a long time. And so just getting back into the Meridian Hall to a packed crowd of thousands was just fun. So for those of our listeners that don't know anything about Bianca Del Rio, again, she's a season six winner and she is just a very, very fast on her feet thinking satirical drag queen or comedy queen, as they'd say. She was really daring and it was her whole tour, her whole stand-up was on the pandemic and reflecting on it. And I just busted a gut throughout as she spreads her quote unquote hate in the world, you know, as she kind (laughs) of uh, shares with the audience, but she was very tongue in cheek. She poked at a lot of racial tropes. And what really amazed me was the meet and greets that 
drag queens have prior to the shows or after the shows, you meet them. But Mm -hmm. she actually asked people in her meet and greet to write down questions for her. And then she answered them at the end for the entire show, right? So, you know, she didn't... Oh, that's really worth it. So it would... I have to tell you at least one of them, right? Because it was just so funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this couple asks one question on one cue card and she calls them out and then she asks them to stand up and then ask the house light to be on so then they can all judge is what she wants the question that you're asking so oh my gosh. what she does is she says okay Marcel and Bruno Marcel and Bruno where are you and then they finally get up and then she, she says what the fuck what took you so long like do you think there's another couple here that's called Marcel and Bruno or something like that so everyone's like laughing right so they get up so yeah. she reads the question the question is do you have any stalkers and what's your address <laughs> <laughs> So she looks at them, stares at them, and then she turns around to the side, and then she goes after her assistant and says, this is evidence. Keep it. You know, and hands it to her. She was so quick and witty. Oh, my goodness. It It was just fun to just see that last part. Because, you know, like stand-up or comedy queens, what they'll do is obviously they've got a script, you know, but to be able to react on your feet and to be read to filth by a drag queen on the spot was just hilarious. It was just hilarious. But isn't that like a strength of a drag queen? It's a, like, that's what we're about. They have to be that yeah, good, Yeah, they right? have to be that good, or at least you have to be used to kind of responding to hecklers. But, you know, if you watch Drag Race enough, we know that not everyone is really good at reading people to filth, as the expression would go. Right. And so, but she was just quick on her feet. She would just read questions and then she would just go right into it. So the beginning part of her act and not giving up too much away is, is that she's like, okay, I want to see the motherfuckers that could afford the front row seats. So turn on the house line. That's so funny. And, she said, and then she said to the audience, she said to the entire audience, she said, see these people, these people made money during the pandemic. So let's talk to them. So then she, <laughs> and so she picked on six people in the front row. Like, did she ask like, what's, yeah, your, what's job? your job? What do you do? Right. And, and like a person said a family business and it says, Oh, well, what kind of family business? And then the guy would yeah. say like, Oh, I sell recreation vehicles from my family business. And she says, well, of course you made a lot of money. Everyone wanted to get out of the city and everyone wanted to go to the country. So what did they need? They nice. needed vehicles and stuff like that. It was just hilarious. That works yeah, well. Yeah. Wow. So she was really quick on her feet as she was just going through. And then she kept coming back to the six people that's sitting in the front row and purposely roasting them and picking on them and then relating them back to her jokes and stuff like that. And it was just like, oh my God, this person's clever. Like, Bianca's so clever. That must have been a nice, refreshing thing to return to, like, a big group event, wasn't it? It really was. And, you know, Sigs, it just made me think, oh, I miss going to pop culture events like this, whether it's stand-up, whether it's a concert. The last thing, literally, before the pandemic started in terms of one of the last events I'd been to was actually the Man of Max show in Brooklyn with Madonna. Oh my God, that was, that a, was while a while ago. ago. And so it was just kind of odd to be back in a space where I didn't feel t- too nervous. I mean, I had seen Jinx Monsoon and Ben De La Creme, oh, you know, whoa. in Christmas, but it was so strange because they were like, everyone was checking vaccines. Everyone was really socially distanced. People were very strict about the mask. I mean, here, they only required the mask. They weren't checking vaccine cards. So it was really laxed mm. in some ways. And it was just like, this is bizarre. Like we're, are we really going back to normal? I don't know, but it felt nice for the time being. So it was just nice to be out. So 
from Drag Race to fabulous Filipino brothers. That is our pop culture topic this week. There is no easy segue from that. There isn't an easy segue. But I think you can get us right into it. Tell yes. our listeners, for those that don't know, what the fabulous Filipino brothers is all about, Sigs. So this movie, directed by Dante Basco, and if you don't know him, listeners, a major Filipino-American mm-hmm. actor, icon, Rufio from Huck. He was the lead in the debut, if you recall, in season, I don't know, season two. Yeah. We did a review of the movie and a retrospect. This movie was written by the Bosco family, including his sister Ariana, Dante, his brothers Darren and Dionisio. These are Filipino-Americans in Southern California, a family, four brothers, four separate plots that intertwine to bring them all together for a wedding. And it starts off, Kuya, like anyone. It's like going to a Filipino person's house, a convo with all the brothers at a table discussing a wedding. Mm. Like it just automatically jumps right into it to throw us up, to introduce us to the four brothers, Deo, the oldest, the second oldest, Duke, David, and finally Danny Boy. And they're intertwining plots. So... What are your hot takes immediately when you saw this movie? You know, some of my instant hot takes was just really the snippets of everyday Filipino life. So as you had said that they right. were at a breakfast table and they were eating their long silog, they were eating Filipino breakfast. And it was just like, that's no different than if Michael and I went over to my parents' place. There's probably a plate of longanisa, a plate of pandasal, some sinigag, so garlic fried rice. And and I just thought to myself, oh, that feels like home. So eating Filipino breakfast or silog in terms of short form, which again stands for sinigag, which is garlic fried rice and itlog, which is egg. And then they were, of course, eating long silog, which is probably my favorite Filipino breakfast accompaniment. Mm -hmm. Of course, there's tocino. That would be known as tosilog or (laughs) many, many different varieties and stuff like that. Do you have a favorite protein for your Filipino breakfast? Honestly, I'm so basic. I like the silog. Just the egg and the rice, which is the bait. It's a bonus if there's longanisa. It's a bonus if there's spam. Super basic at the do house growing Mm. up. It would be eggs and fried rice. There's that smell. It's that morning spot coffee. Well, I didn't drink coffee, but that. And in the morning, you smell that garlic. You're like, "Mm -mm -mm." Mm mm-mm-mm. It's so cultural. My wife goes, you don't find that heavy? I'm like, people have bagels. And eggs and stuff like that. A bagel's pretty heavy. Like, can compare you to know, take yeah. rice, If it was just rice, a, yeah. like, if it was like a mixed sandwich or something like that, I don't know that that's, that's, that's heavy. just as yeah. heavy as far as I'm concerned. No pandasal and coffee? Well, that's a staple. That's a staple. <laughs> like, that's a staple of the do house, house, right? Like, it's always around. Is pandasal everywhere? Like, I literally called my parents maybe two days ago and they were making pandasal. Yes, they are. It's just constant, you know, how do you know you're in a Filipino household? There's pandasol cooking at the do house. (laughs) And I think it's almost a, it's a given. It's a given that it's there. (laughs) Well, it's always a a given. Yeah, good. It's a gift in our household. I know, I know. We actually have pandasol. So the other thing that I appreciated, just like that opening sequence, having a boisterous, Mm -hmm. loud, multi-generational home. And certainly, you know, when Michael was introduced to my family, I had to warn him, honey, we're loud. Like, we're really loud. Oh, God. <laughs> you sound like me talking to Emily. Just, you know, it's loud. And my wife, who's quieter than myself, she's like, oh, okay. And then she was like, oh, it's loud. I'm like, yeah, yeah. pretty much. No one's angry. Yeah. We're just trying to tell our points at our yeah. volume. 
But I think you and I are both known for our group of friends for just being very <laughs> yeah, loud. Just the two of us alone, we cackle. Whether it's the, the volume of a TV on when we get home and all that stuff, this is just the That's hallmarks. Right. <laughs> Of that's us, right. okay, okay, Tara, get with it, okay, yes. we're dear friend well, that's Tara. That's what it means to be friends with some Filipinos. Yeah. The other thing that I appreciated was, at least in that opening sequence, was their ingenuity or the ingenuity of the Filipino. And what I mean by that is just making things work, yes. making things happen. So they seem to be planning a wedding on the fly is kind of what we seem to kind of walk into in that opening sequence. And I just appreciated <laughs> that. So again, some of my hot takes are really just like the portrayal of everyday Filipino life, something that I can certainly relate to. And I'm sure you could relate to and some of our listeners can relate to. Yeah, and it just, I like how you said that, of them just planning and dealing with the wedding and taking responsibility. So you're introduced to the four brothers, who are actually brothers in real mm-hmm. life, the Bosco brothers. And the Kuya, da- Deo, mm-hmm. like, was like, okay, I'm going to foot the bill for this, the food at the wedding. Mm-hmm. And not only, you know, as a Kuya in, like, you know, the hierarchical structure, like, being the older brother, being dependable, he wants to take it and take care of footing the bill and making sure that there's food on the table mm. for the family for this wedding, which you don't know whose wedding it is at the moment. It's not revealed. And he goes on this. I almost want to say this movie was like sort of pieced together. And some of the vignettes are very reminiscent of like plots from like a Tarantino mm. film. I don't know if you felt the same yes. way too, where Dale isn't good with his money. He, he's a bit of a gambler. He loses the money and he's like, oh crap, what am I going to do? So right. he has to do this very questionable task about taking this rooster <laughs> for a cockfight. And what's very funny, it's very played off of being this like high vantage, like there's danger and stuff. He realized, oh crap, I don't like birds. I have to go take it. And not only does he have to go take it to a very shady part of town mm-hmm. with some questionable people, right. his Lola is in of tow, course. which just made me sort of laugh. And it's like an homage to those Tarantino things where there's very big violence, but there's a little bit of comedy. There's a little bit of a comical sidebar story. Yes. And it sort of fell into that. And I think, Kuya, I think you highlighted before that this trope of the older Kuya being responsible do we see that? Yeah, I, and in, Dale, in this right? case, we see. Obviously, he says and is ambitious in his own way of saying, "I'll take responsibility for the food part of the wedding reception." Is what we find out, and then he does some not so responsible things. So it's that was the <laughs> other thing that I very much appreciated was how much the roles were kind of expanded upon in terms of what you see. So typically, the kuyas or the ates, the oldest sisters, the oldest siblings, are typically very, very responsible and really have something to prove that way. And yet we see him actually not being so responsible. And then interestingly enough, still pulling off his family responsibilities, but in a very questionable way is what we would have to say, right? With Lola, with Lola and Toll, Toll right? With Lola and, and with Toll. Lola knowing how to solve the problem, I might add also too at the same time. I, yeah, <laughs> I noticed fun, and I, I think it was great for this low-key Lola to be in that. And then we're introduced, and it's sort of funny, uh, Dante had set up each vignette with just like a blackout card and the name of each brother. So Duke is the second oldest, played by Dante Bosco himself. Right. He was like the golden child, right? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. He was like the perfect one. okay. If he's perfect, and this is my only hot take, and if the Bosco brothers happen to listen to this, in the opening sequence, they talk about Ensamada and Pandasal, and Duke mis, like, identifies it. Maybe that was the script. Maybe that's the role. But come on. Duke is, like, near our age. 
and he doesn't know the difference between and Samada. Like that was very hard for me to it deal with just because I'm a personal thing linked to the carbs. It was for me too. It was just like it wasn't like Duke was playing a ten year old that didn't know the difference between That's empanada right. and samada empanada. Yeah, so I, was too I just much. thought it wasn't it was a little, it wasn't that believable. The ironic twist in all of that too is, is that he's headed to the Philippines. So if he's headed back to the Philippines in that yes. business trip, what do you mean that he doesn't know that? I know that most, if you will, Phil Am, Phil Can, people in the diaspora, Filipinos born in the diaspora try really hard to not mispronounce things when they're back in the Philippines. So it just seemed really interesting that they were playing off of that. It was a bit confusing, to be quite honest. Maybe it was for comedic effect is what they were trying to achieve. In the story, Duke does go back to the Mm -hmm. Philippines for business, and he has his vignette becomes a little bit more romantic. It had a little bit of like a little bit of Richard Linklater very before sunset, before sunrise, mm-hmm. of him walking the streets in the Philippines with a beautiful actress, Solen Husaf, mm-hmm. who's like related to Irwin. Beautiful face, and they just reminisce about being is it high school? Sweethearts, and they were yeah. And he totally said sweethearts, and they're you know what could have been, and it was sort of dreamy like and very. It really took it to different, and it was filmed in the Philippines. Right. This part of the movie, and I sort of like that. And he makes a lot of good observations of someone from the diaspora that had immigrated to the United States, where part of the experience of being Filipino is loving what you've never seen as much as what you've known, and it was just one of the things he connects to that experience where I know this, it feels like home because of just like the experience. Like, yes, I've been there, but when you go back, I even think like in an interview, I don't know if it was with Variety where he said, going home is an experience and you call it home because of there's that familiarity with it. And now listen, I've never been to the Philippines personally, but I don't know if that sort of like comment sort of strikes you, Kuya, because you know, you've immigrated to Canada, you lived in Canada, you're Canadian, just as much as you are Filipino. When you go back, you do call it home, right? I do call it home. And that was certain th- yeah. something that I truly related to in that part of the yeah. movie where it does feel like home. It feels like you've discovered things or it sounds like, It's more like a revelation. It's like, oh, this is what home feels like or things in terms of your own identity that kind of wakes up once you get back to the Philippines. And so every time I get back to the Philippines, it's like, it's less about visiting. It's more about kind of homecoming in a lot of ways is is what it feels like. And so it was just nice to see that story be told that every time Duke goes back, he feels a sense of his own identity there. But you're right. There was kind of like a romantic feature to this particular vignette that they were sharing. It was really gorgeous that they were sharing Intramuros. It's beautiful. Yeah. And so like the fort within Manila, or at least the remaining fort that's left in Manila. I've walked that area, you know, many times. Have you? I was going to ask you. No way. There is kind of like... Spanish, colonial, beautiful feel. I feel like women are going to walk out in Maria Clara's at any moment. Yeah. As well as you think that you're going to see some men in some Barong Tagalogs at some point just because of what the whole structure looks like. So it was interesting. And it was also an existential question as well is kind of what we were kind of dealing with. Do you regret missing out on your high school sweetheart and stuff like that? And them having an interlude in a church and 
all of that stuff. That dude, yes. <laughs> is the best way to kind of call which, it. Yeah, which totally plays into, like, it brings you right back to yeah. comedy. And a little bit of a teleseria at the same time. Which is exactly it. I totally thought, I see where you go in there, uh, Bosco family. I thought that yeah, was that pretty is. funny. And then the vignette itself becomes very jarring, and I won't spoil yeah. it there, but yeah. it sort of pivots. But I just want to say, before you kind of move on to the other yeah, brother, too, is, is that vignette really kind of highlighted that the golden child isn't always golden, or they don't always have the golden Yes. Or they're not really perfect. So what you see very much is not something to be envied. And I think that that's kind of what happens sometimes amongst Filipino families is people get really envious of the golden child and they think, oh, like he or she has everything. And it's like, "Mm, I don't know about that. You know, they just might have a better time at holding it back or putting it away or having compartmentalized it. And I think that that's what we discover with Duke. Solely true. And he can't even identify Filipino carbs right for Pete's <laughs> sake. That was a cheap shot. That was a cheap shot. That was a cheap shot. I'm so sorry. And then you pivot to David. No yes. other nickname. I felt like the David vignette, he's very comical, a bit of a slacker, sort of like funny. Right. Like I felt like I was watching a Dolphy. It really movie. was. It was so humorous. I've never seen Filipino food be so, I don't know if I was hungry or more turned on during that little vignette. It was a comedic because, nine and a half yeah. weeks is really what I thought Very about. sexy. I won't look at, you know, some of the food the same <laughs> way. And there's some lovely twists to that. It was just really thrown there to, I think, to smooth over the jarring Duke storyline to David. It was very refreshing, but I felt like, I'm like, I've seen this type of comedy, not just, it's very Dolphy. It's it very, is very Dolphy. expressive face. It was it ridiculous was and over the top. Yeah. And we get the sense that David is not to be taken seriously. And yet he's responsible mm-hmm. for some later seriousness, if you it, will, right? So he's more than just yeah. a trickster is the way I kind of see it, you know? Like we see these classic mm-hmm. Filipino tropes of where there's always a trickster or someone like Dolphy who gets into a lot of physical comedy and we have a great old time laughing, but they're also quite clever and strategic and more than just mischievous or funny for that matter. And that's kind of what I appreciated about his story and, and him busting out of his own role. I think that's such a good link to Danny Boy, the other brother, where David plays a pivotal role in Danny, who's obviously heartbroken. Mm-hmm. And I honestly think was one of the best storylines. Yeah, I would agree I, I with you. Could, I wish it could have been fleshed on. So Danny Boy is heartbroken, sort of living in Deo's family's upper room, the kid's toy room, just making very Ross Geller-like <laughs> music with his computer. He's harboring a breakup. He wants to put himself back out there. His family's sort of worried. They're letting him brood. And David's like, you should just get on to like some apps, dude. And he just... He doesn't know if he can go to, you know, dip his toe back into the romance pool. Mm -hmm. And he eventually meets this character named Teresa. They meet in person and she's pregnant. And there's a wonderful scene in there and where she's just trying to peel the layers off Danny and they realize that they're actually on a date where she just wanted something simple. She's like, yeah, you know, I am pregnant, but I just want to have fun. I want to go dance. I see you. I see that you're like everyone, that we're trying to go through stuff and move beyond Mm -hmm. it. And it was just that vignette, and it almost took it to a different, more realistic before sunrise in opposition to Duke's very pretty and gorgeous moon-like walks with Anne in the Philippines. But here, Danny Boy in SoCal dealing with Teresa. And what I loved is, you know, he takes her dancing. He takes her to, like, Filipino night dancing with the moms and Lola's wearing turnos and the bull Tagalog. And it was just, it was romantic. It was just emotional. And it was just... 
him trying to really put himself out there and connect, and he connects with Teresa. That could have been the whole movie. Like, I was like, oh, this is actually very interesting. And they talk about a bit of mental health. Yeah, I think they, right? they could have and, actually drawn that. That could yeah. have been a whole movie unto itself. And I think one framing of Danny Boy is very much a prodigal son, except he just didn't go yes. anywhere. He was just, he went to the attic and pretty much locked himself up in the attic unless people coaxed him out to eat or something like that. And I think what's really fascinating is I think prodigal son stories, especially if you watch a lot of teleserias, like no one welcomes the prodigal <laughs> son back. But here we see Danny Boy actually be welcomed and quite lovable in a lot of ways. And I don't think that necessarily comes out in Filipino depictions of what prodigal sons are all about. What else did you love about this film, Ziggs? I honestly... There's so much potential in this stuff, and this stuff I want to see mm. as someone who's Filipino and the diaspora from Canada. I really love the Lola. Mm-hmm. There's nothing mm-hmm. like a Lola, whether it's the Marvel Universe, which will be a full, uh, which will be a future yes. warm up next week with me and Kuya. But like having that wisdom and being so low key in one of the last pivotal moments, Lola takes out a rosary and starts praying. I just, I loved it, and you know. There's parts where, as an audience member, I relate to this. I know this. I, I see this. The Bosco brothers are generation, right. Kuya, growing up. Right. Like We've seen Dante and his brothers breakdancing and seeing them on shows. And I watched Hook and the debut. Like, especially with it being in SoCal, like, it's this vibe that they're showing. Right. And I like that. I do want more. I, I don't know about you. What, did, what were your other thoughts that you appreciated or uh, something for you to yeah, think about from the movie? Yeah, I really appreciated their ambition. Their ambition was to yeah. try to portray everything Filipino in under 90 minutes, essentially. Yeah, you know? that's, a, that's a tight movie. It was movie. a lot. Yeah. It was a lot to kind of put in there. And so I think to myself, when there's so little representation and only flashes of Filipino reflection in Western and North American movies, it becomes really tempting to try to portray everything. And I think that that's what happened for, mm-hmm. for this particular movie. I think to myself that this might be, and they may have been thinking about this as well, that this might be their only chance to show ourselves or our culture or our immigration story to the world. So it, it makes me think in some ways that long-form storytelling, if your point is to tell everything about being Filipino and what that's all about, might be the way to go. Because when I was watching this film, there were some awkward moments or there was a lot of exposition. There was a narrator. And I didn't really right. think that the narrator was that important, not because her voice wasn't important, because we find out that she's a pivotal character in all of this. Yeah. But I just felt like a lot of stuff was being explained to me. Not that I didn't think it needed to be explained, but it would needed to be explained to an audience that's not me. So I just felt like that the movie was really a proof of concept for a TV series picked up on Netflix. And I thought to myself, mm-hmm. you know, in the TV series, the narrator would have probably fit in better. Kind of like a how you met your mother, how you met your father, which is kind of coming up soon enough. So I think in a movie, audiences are really trained to pay very close attention these days and that I don't think as much exposition is needed, not only just with the narrator, but even what the characters were saying themselves, because there were times that I thought, I don't think you need to say that. Like, I think what you're showing is enough. And 
I think to myself in a TV series, it really gives time for the creatives to really deeply explore all the themes that they were trying to explore in this 90-minute film. And I think a TV series really just gives the time to do that as opposed to trying to fit everything in in this movie. So that's what I would have wished for, was that this was actually Mm -hmm. more of a TV series so that it didn't have to explain everything. And I think in some ways it became a victim of its own ambition. So those are just kind of some of my initial thoughts too in terms of this film. It was great romp. I didn't need all the exposition. And I think it might actually bug a few people that are Filipino and don't need all that exposition. But if you can put that aside, it's an interesting watch on a Sunday afternoon. It is. The other thing that I appreciated in this film, too, was we finally get to the (laughs) wedding. And I just thought it was interesting that they fused black tie with their use of Philippine textiles and bow ties and cummerbunds. And I thought to myself, you know, every time I've gone to some type of formal event, and I know that you and I have have done this a lot, is is we usually wear our Barong Tagalogs. And I know that, you know, one of my favorite pictures of you and me is actually in our Barong Tagalogs, you know, at your wedding or your second wedding, as I'd like to say. It was the second <laughs> wedding for people that couldn't make the first wedding in the Niagara It was region, like right? the Filipino fam yeah, jam. Yeah, it was the Filipino fam, yeah. fam jam for sure. <laughs> and so that kind of leads us to today's culture capital topic of the week or of this particular episode, which is the Barong Tagalog. And, you know, for our listeners out there who don't know what the Barong Tagalog is, they're typically men's formal dress made of embroidered woven fabric, typically made of either juicy, so J-U-S-I, which is basically silk, but less transparent than what we would know normally in the North American textiles industry, or piña, which is basically made out of Spanish pineapple fibers or Spanish Mm -hmm. pineapple silk. And in some ways, I think, I don't think I really had consciousness of the Barong Tagalog until I was in grade eight, and really until I went to the Philippines in 1986 and really saw the silhouette of the Barong Tagalog. And that's when it first entered my consciousness. But Sigs, how about you? When did it first enter your consciousness? I had this story, I don't think I ever told you this, and I remember when we were programming, planning our episodes, Mm -hmm. I was like, I need to tell you this Barong Tagalog story. So it's funny, because my daughter is the same age where I was introduced to the Barong Tagalog. I was seven, and we had my great communion, we're Catholic, Mm -hmm. and for my second great communion, we'd all be wearing robes, all the seven and eight-year-olds in my grade two class, but underneath you could wear whatever, Mm -hmm. right? So... I really wanted to wear a tie and a button-down. Mm. That's all I really wanted to do. I had dress shoes, a pair of khakis. Mm. I really wanted to put on a tie because I thought it would be really, really cool. Mm. In my class, I remember growing up, Kuya, there was only two visible minorities. Mm-hmm. It was me and a boy named Harold. His name went by Ha when he was younger, then he eventually became Harold. Mm. And I knew I was different. And I remember my mom's like, you're not wearing a tie and a button-down. I'm like, but I have one in my closet. She's like, no, you're wearing this. And she gave me this Barong Tagalog. And I'm like... Why am I wearing this? Mm. Like, I don't understand. I was really frustrated. And I remember all my friends, my classmates are going to be wearing Mm -hmm, this. mm -hmm. And I want to wear this. And my mom's like, no, you're wearing this. That's it. And, you know, being seven years old, what choice do I have? I was told to (laughs) do this. And I was pretty obedient. I mean, my mouth didn't develop more until I was a teenager. But fine, I did it. I was super irritated. Why can't I choose my own clothes? And at least I'm wearing a gown. No one can see it. I'm like, no one else wears this. Mm -hmm, I don't mm -hmm. understand. And even uh, my parents were wearing, like, a Bronx to God or a turno, like mm-hmm, everyone was mm-hmm. just in their normal church wear. 
And I remember, like, I was sort of annoyed. I got, like, I did a reading Mm. for the mass and all that stuff. And after, we had to return our robes. And then everyone's like, oh, just, you know, you can get pictures with the pastor. Right. Like, the father. And I was like, okay, fine. I took off my gown, and I was waiting in line. And I remember... My dad was behind me. You know, my dad with the old, can- like the camera back then, <laughs> yes. nice Canon. He's like, okay, Siggy, Kurt, you're going to, you know, Father Cartwright's there. And I'm like, okay. Right. Father Cartwright looked at me and he said, wow, I like your shirt. And my mom sort of reminded me, she's like, you do know Father Cartwright did work in the Philippines. Mm. And he's very familiar. He goes, oh, I really like that. I know that when there's special occasions, you know, they wear the brown Tagalog. This is very, very nice. Mm. And not once did I hear him make comments to like, you know, my white friends like Mark or Mike to say, oh, you know, nice suit and tie or whatever. He's like, oh, I really like what you're wearing because it was something yeah, different. Yeah. You know, and inside, you know, Susie Dew is behind course. me going, ah, I told you, I told you, <laughs> I told you. And it always stuck in my mind because I was like, why couldn't I dress like everyone else? My mom's like, I really want you to wear this. And I understood it was part of our culture. It didn't connect with me. But it did when I was older and my cousin, Cedric, who right. you know, he had a sixth grade grad and he wore a barong. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, is that what you're wearing? Like, what are other people wearing? He's like, I don't care. I'm wearing a barong. I'm like, okay, great. He proudly wore it in there. Mm. He won awards and stuff. And a lot of kids are like, oh, nice shirt. He's like, thanks. And a lot of the other kids weren't even dressed up, but he looked so proud. Yeah. And I was like, wow, like someone who was 12 going on 13 have this such pride. And I was sort of mad at myself. I mean, I was seven. What did I know? And I just thought it was that connection. I'm like, wow, the evolution. And I was like, wow, that confidence and just comfortable in his own skin. You know, at seven, I, I didn't know any better. And now, like, I was just proud of him to be like, no, I'm representing. This is very formal. This is an acknowledgement to our culture that this is an important event. And I'd like to honor it by wearing yeah. it. Yeah, I was just so proud of him to see that. And I'm like, oh, God, you know, I was in my 20s when I saw him at his grad. And I was just very proud of him. And I was like, oh, that's really, really great. And as we grew older. Mm-hmm. Oh, go ahead. Well, I was go just going to say, too, Sigs, that I can see if you're like the only Filipino in grade two, you right. just want to be like everybody else in a lot of ways. And I can see you thinking, I just want to be in a suit and a tie, just like everyone else, instead of having to answer questions. Because, you know, kids will ask questions like, why are you in a shirt, Siggy? You know, why are you wearing that, Siggy? And I just think to myself, I can understand that. But at the same time, I'm a little bit envious of you because I had a suit and tie for my first communion. I would have liked to have seen myself in it. But that's after the fact. That's after the fact. I think I can look back and think, oh, I wish I was in that, Mm. in some type of Barong Tagalog at the time. I also wonder, too, if Cedric had like a few Filipino friends at the time. There were other Filipinos or if there was an active Filipino organization. He was really trying to understand his culture. And now my cousin is, not only is he Filipino, he's also black and he's Cuban Mm -hmm. too. And he's so like aware about culture and he was so like interested and I love seeing that I love that energy and where I was just like wow I wish I was that mature back then I mean seven versus 13 is different but there was such pride and he's like yeah I look cool and he was so proud and my auntie Josie you see it was just like oh look at him so proud and he did so well and as you grow older and now it makes a lot of sense. Now, listeners, I'm telling you, the Bronx Tagalog, you can wear a thin under armor under it. It's so breezy mm. versus being in a suit and a tie. And 
I remember Kuya and I talking about this on a previous episode where I think Versace came out with a line with like these gray dress shirts, which look like a barong. They totally look like barongs. So for my Filipino fam, Jan, I think, Kuya, what color was your barong? I had a purple. Was yours purple? Yeah, I had a purple. And mine was like a slate yeah. gray. And I'm going to put, the, the picture will be attached to this like episode. <laughs> yes. We look good. And it wasn't like the classic. And I, I wore the barong again. It was beautifully yes. made. My aunt had it made for me. And I wore it to another wedding, my friend Diana's wedding. And her husband wore a barong and the groomsmen and they felt so comfortable and someone's like why is yours gray like ours is just the white I'm like oh I had it made and there are amazing like on Instagram is it pineapple industries that have gorgeous bronze mm. that are made my wife has a yellow yeah. one yeah 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 just so pretty like it's changed hasn't it like yeah, the style I think it's and the details modernized. Like, yeah. you can see different fabrics now being used for it different collars that are being used for it sometimes even putting in if you will mandarin collars as well and so mixing up a lot of stuff I think that it's gone beyond the traditional juicy or piña fabric that's been used. Different types of embroidery now have been used and stuff like that. I've even seen a lot that has been bejeweled or bedazzled in a number of different ways. But I just wanted to say, Michael has his own barong Tagalog as well. Does he? And I remember when he put it on the first time, he was like, so let me get this straight. So dark pants or black pants, nice dress shoes, and this. And I said, yeah, and he's just like, I don't know why the whole world doesn't do this. It's so comfortable to go to some formal event dressed up this way. It's breezy. You're not sweating. It's comfortable. It's free flowing. He was just like, I don't get it. I don't get why not more of us actually dress this way. And I'm like, I don't know why. Why we're up in a cummerbund and bow ties and tuxedo shirts and then suddenly tails or like a really thick wool suit in some ways. I can say that for myself. I don't think I really truly understood the significance of wearing Barong Tagalogs until I was in Michigan with family and we were visiting and attending a Phil M ball, essentially. And it was hosted by the local association of Filipino doctors and healthcare professionals. And I saw a whole ballroom filled with people wearing barongs that again, weren't just finely embroidered, but really all studded and all jeweled. It was was really a glamorous event. And then suddenly it clicked in me, right? It didn't feel like something provincial and something from a past time. It was like, Mm -hmm. this is how we celebrate and how we mark formal occasions in the Philippines. And then I got it. And I have to say, I didn't really get that until my 20s, even though it entered my consciousness in grade eight. I just thought, oh, this is a tradition that's for old people. And I was like, no, this is a timeless tradition that keeps going. And I have to say that for the last three trips to the Philippines that I've been on pre-pandemic, I've kept picking up an array of Barong Tagalogs in different colors. And so, you know, I've got like an emerald green. I've got the purple. I've got like red for you know, invited to a Chinese New Year function. Oh, that's a good yeah, color. Yeah, it's like, yeah. it's such beautiful stuff, right? So I've picked up different colors and different embroidery patterns. I am still on the lookout for an embroidered and bejeweled barong Tagalog. So listeners, if you know where I can yeah. find one, let me know, because I would appreciate it, because that's something that I'm certainly looking for. One of the last things that I think I want to say before you take us out, Sigs, is, is that wearing a barong Tagalog is not only about having and wearing your pride in your culture. And certainly like Cedric, we should be wearing it with pride and really should be thinking about our culture. I would also say that wearing the Barong Tagalog is also a dedication and it's a dedication to the survivor of our culture. And 
That's like a message that's really been echoed in the Abasta matriarch in that film, uh, The Fabulous Filipino Brothers. Because when I think about what it means to kind of uphold Filipino culture outside of the Philippines, one way to do it is to wear your Barang Tagalog when you can at some type of semi-formal, formal event. And, you know, it's not only just going to keep our culture alive and well outside of the diaspora or in the diaspora, rather, but it allows us to uphold our culture in ways that we can't even imagine until people start commenting on it. So, you know, the fixing of the week really is what can you do to continue this dedication of our Filipino culture? And it could be wearing a terno, it could be wearing, or it could be wearing a barong Tagalog, it could be putting a rosary in your car, right? (laughs) (laughs) You know, but whatever it is, think of it as a dedication, more than just kind of like being, displaying Filipino pride, but I want you to think of it as a dedication. That's well put. And damn, we look good in purple and gray. We did. Like, we're going to post that picture. Because I'm like, you and I popped. And, like, the other two people, my uncle and our friend Jeff yeah. for the picture, they were wearing the plain yeah. white. But you and I, like, popped. I think we bookended everybody. I think we they did. were in between I us. I think we did. I mean, we popped. We made it pop, like we you totally said. Did. Folks, listeners, if you have pictures of your Bronx Tagalog, let us see them. Email us at halohalopopculture at gmail.com. Or, you know what? Tweet us at halohalopop or put it on our Instagram. Direct message us at halohalopopculture. I want to see those pictures. And hey, Watch the Fabulous Filipino Brothers. You can rent it or buy it. It's on iTunes for your own consumption. The Holo Holo Podcast is also available on all podcast platforms. Rate us and leave a review. Finally, we receive editorial feedback from Mary Beth Badian. Our musical theme is by Chelter Ring, and then we'll see all of you guys again real soon. See you soon.